I invite you to turn with me in your worship folder. The scripture passage is there. We are doing a, we're doing a study on Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, but we're, our target is to answer this question. What would it look like if you and I live a truly distinctive, genuine Christian life? And the only one who can really answer that for us is Jesus. And, and in the Sermon on the Mount, he unpacks what a true Christian, what a genuine Christian looks like. And so as we read this together, this is, uh, we're going to jump back and forth over the course of time between uh, the sermon's account in Luke and in, and in Matthew. We're doing Matthew today. So let's read God's word together. It's a series of passages here. I like it when you read out loud with me. So let's read God's word out loud. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, throughout this sermon, Jesus is setting up his conclusion. And his conclusion is this. There's two paths, there's two trees, and there are two houses. Now, the interesting thing is that what Jesus says is these Paths, trees, and houses look remarkably alike. But one path leads to destruction. One tree is the fruit of its poison. And one house sits on sinking sand. Now, his, his teaching throughout this sermon is to give you the ability to distinguish between the two paths. It's fascinating because he really does not deal with a path at all that has to do with disobedience to the law of God. He only deals with two paths that themselves have at their, their motive, their purpose to obey God. For example, he doesn't say one, one path is obviously good and the other is obviously bad. Rather, he says both look good because both are trying to obey God's law. Both groups of people follow the Ten Commandments. Both give to the poor, go to some kind of a worship or service or whatever it is. They study the Bible, yet one is poison. You see, in Jesus' day, just as today, 
There are people in, in the religion that Jesus was speaking to who devote themselves to nothing except the study of the law. And in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the, sort of the, the most professional of this group. And they had broken the law of God down to about 600 rules. And they spent every day studying these. As a matter of fact, on the, on the Sabbath alone, there were almost 40 rules. My favorite one was that a woman could not look in the mirror because she might see a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it out. I always thought that was hilarious. So, I mean, everything, even, even today in religious circles, there's a value given to somebody who does nothing but study the rules, study the law. The, the wife of that person, the family of that person has to go and provide a living for the family so that they can devote themselves utterly to the rules. In that context, Jesus says, your righteousness has to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. It's, it's a fascinating thing when you start to, to realize there's a radical, radical difference between Christianity and religion. As a matter of fact, you cannot understand the New Testament till you understand that. Here's, here's one of the key differences. If you really are a Christian and you've really, you've really begun to understand the kingdom perspective that Jesus brings, if you understand things from the way that Jesus looks at them, then then this will make sense to you. And if you're still religious, it won't. A Christian is someone who says, I have a plank in my eye. And treats everyone else as if they have a speck in their eye. But a religious person treats everyone else as if they have the plank. And all I have is the speck. You see, if you've really fallen in love with Jesus, if you really understood the faith that he calls you to, then the one you have seen most clearly is yourself. You've seen your failings, your defects, your issues. But see, if you're just trying to appear righteous, if you're just trying to appear like you have the right image and the externals are all that matter, then all you're ever doing is figuring out who in the room is more righteous than you, who's more spiritual, who should be the leader, who's more godly. And, and, and you almost automatically go to scorekeeping. And if you don't believe me, all you have to do is listen carefully to somebody and they'll say something like this. At least I don't do that. At least I'm not one of those. The minute you say that, you are revealing a religious heart, not a Christian heart. Tim Keller makes a little caveat, though, with this that I think is helpful. He says, when I say that gospel goodness is attracted to and attractive, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm really talking about gospel goodness. I'm not saying the gospel itself. He says, the gospel is still very repugnant to people. As soon as you open your mouth about what you believe, you're going you're gonna to get some trouble. Here's the difference. If you have gospel goodness in you, 
You never act or feel superior to anybody else, especially those who are different from you. I, I know this is a silly way to do it, but I, wanna, I, I just want to drive this home. So I want you to get your righteous finger. Okay, come on. And I want you to poke somebody next to you. And you can, and you can leave a mark if you want to. All right. All right, here's what I want you to say to them. And you can say it with swagger. Okay? I expect from you gospel goodness. Say it one more time. I expect from you gospel goodness, not religious righteousness. See, what we've too long expected of each other is religious righteousness. Condemnation, judgment, criticism. But what Jesus is calling forth here is a depth within you where goodness, something good is coming from you. Something that we recognize as goodness. And it all starts with beginning to understand I'm the one with the plank in my eye. Now, those religious leaders that he dealt with, he said this about them. He says, your righteousness has to surpass. Well, right away, people must have said, how could it be that my righteousness would surpass the Pharisees? Who in the world could be more righteous than the teachers of the law and the Pharisees? But over and over again, Jesus begins to unpack true goodness. And he says, you heard it said this way, but I say, he goes through to all the Ten Commandments, you heard you shall not murder, commit adultery, you've heard that you should keep your promises. What's he doing? In every case, what he's saying is, you religious people are concerned with the external. I am concerned with the heart. Now, before we, we look at those commands, I want, I want you to understand what Jesus means by heart. What's happened to many of us is we think the heart is this sentimental place. We think of the heart as an emotional place. And so many of us disregard the heart because we think of it as emotional. The Bible never, ever portrays the heart as merely emotional. It portrays the heart as the very center and essence of your being. It's the place where you truly hold on to, commit yourself to the values you really trust and believe. So it's the trust mechanism of your life. It's fascinating to me that often people will manifest things and say, but that's not who I really am. I, mean, I, think, I think in some ways, and this is, might be tough on some of us, but unless you're in close relationship with people who can press your buttons, you never know yourself. By being close enough to somebody who calls you on your stuff, either whether it's a father's um, instruction or a mother's teaching or it's, it's a wife who doesn't let you get away with your nonsense or friends who don't let you just say your baloney all over the place, you have to be somewhere where people call you on your stuff and force what's inside of you outside of you. But then so many of us, when we actually see what's inside of us, we immediately go, I didn't mean that. How many of you who are married people here 
have said things in the heat of battle and go, but I didn't mean what I said. Then why would you say it? Well, you said it because when your heart was pressed, that's what came out. And so until you recognize you do mean it, you'll never repent of it. And it will stay there. A cup of water, when tipped over, always spills out water. It isn't transformed into Kool-Aid. So when bitterness comes out of you, it's because it was in your heart. And those who have awful, terrible behavior, who lie, who cheat, who do all this, but say, I have a good heart, there's no evidence. Jesus is talking about the heart. And if you begin to understand the way God works, God is in the job of revealing what's in your heart so he can heal it. Religion hides the heart. Religion uses rules so you can keep the heart hidden while you have the appearance of goodness. When you take away the rules, then the heart often manifest because it doesn't know how to appear. So what Jesus says is what goes on with you has to be greater than what went on with the Pharisees. And these guys were experts on appearances. So Jesus starts with, we'll look at four of his teachings on the deepness of the gospel goodness. He deals with the Ten Commandments. He said, here's the, here's the commandment, you shall not murder. And he says, basically, religious people are only concerned about physical murder. So they check off their list and say, I'm righteous. I've never physically killed anybody. So there's one commandment I keep. Until Jesus explains the commandment. Then Jesus, Jesus says, if in your heart you have ill will towards someone, if you despise them, if you think of others as fools and yourself as wise, if you disdain other people, even if you are indifferent to them, then Jesus says you've killed them. Now, we live in a society that is murderous in Jesus' sense. Because we live in a society that's indifferent, disdains, treats others as fools. Now, think about this with me. In order to be cool, now some of you in here, being cool is not important to you. But others of you, it took you hours to get ready this morning. Just to look like you came from the thrift store. I know, vintage. It's vintage, right? Now, if you ever really study what makes something cool in our society, it always is tinged with disdain and indifference. I will not let you know me. I will not let you hurt me. I will reject you before you can reject me. Now, let me take it a step further. I am not, and you know, it's, I hate to say this on tape, but uh, I am not a prude about language. I enjoy vulgarity. Some of you are not laughing at this moment. Okay? It does not bother me when people are vulgar around me. All right? That's, it cracks me up, actually, because as soon as they find out I'm a pastor, they think God finally heard them, you know. 
But if you listen carefully to our society, anger is a norm. So people don't even know they're angry. The worst profanity in the English language is the F word. I mean, it is, it is the expression of disdain. It's the expression of hate. It's the expression of anger. And yet, if you call people who use it in every sentence, they'll say they're not angry. Do you understand what that means? They have so seared their conscience that murder is their norm. Not even using it in a way to provoke, using it as if it is not a provocation tells you more than if it is a provocation. We live in a disdainful society. You and I can get to the place where we don't even notice anymore. The Bible says one of the worst places for you to get to is where you do not blush anymore. You understand what I'm saying? I'm saying that if you just give in to the flow and you just jump in the current, then you are, not only are you not righteous, but you've lost all goodness. And now you are, there's murder in your heart and you don't even know it anymore. That's Jesus' definition of goodness. Now, I mean, he doesn't stop there. He says, you shall not commit adultery. And see, Jesus has this very, very, very straightforward look at sex. He's the creator of sex. He has a straightforward, he gives you what it means to have sex and what it means to have sex apart from the instruction manual. Jesus says this, when you have sex outside of marriage, you're saying this, I want to have physical, external nakedness and vulnerability, but I don't want to give you personal nakedness or vulnerability. Jesus says, when you ask for physical nakedness and you don't have the integrity or guts to back it up with personal nakedness and you're not willing to put your whole heart there, he calls that lust. When you do that, Jesus is not approved, friends. When you do that, he's not going, oh, that's so dirty. He's saying, when you do that, even in fantasy, what you're doing is stabbing your own heart. Let me, let me illustrate this with a movie I watched. I like independent movies, especially ones about, that come out of the city. I, I love stuff about New York City. So this movie I was watching, um, these two uh, actors and a, a man and a woman are both 20-somethings trying to make it in, in the city, both with jobs and, and lives and stuff. But something happens that every day they are across from each other in the subway. And their lives start start intersecting well one day the guy who is oblivious that this girl is falling for him like many men many times uh, he's crying on a bench in the subway and she comes up to comfort him okay so he had this beautiful girlfriend and he had in a rent controlled apartment he broke up with the girlfriend and lost the apartment. I think he was crying over the apartment. Because <laughs> he was having to move way out in Queens somewhere, you know, in a hole somewhere. He lost the rent control. Yeah. So he's beside himself, but he leaves his personal journal on the bench when he leaves to get on the train. 
So this is all his writings, his thoughts, his, his creativity. Everything is in this journal. So she, she's like, oh, you left your journal. But he goes, the train leaves. And so she takes it home with her. And of course she reads it. Now she becomes a very effective stalker. Because she knows I have every thought and is every, you know, all his, his dreams and all of this stuff. Well, she wins him, and they, they're coming back to her apartment, and they're going to have sex. So they're going to have physical nakedness and physical vulnerability because, you know, that's just the way our society looks at these things. But he sees that she has his journal. He gets furious with her. And he, he breaks off any contact with her, any relationship with her whatsoever. He was willing, friends, to give her all his physicalness. But he wasn't willing to give her anything personal. Come on. And Jesus says, that destroys your soul. It's not that Jesus is trying to take your fun away. It's not that Jesus is trying to... It's trying to make you do something that is bad for you, Jesus is saying, that's not goodness. And just to avoid having physical intercourse with someone is not the only way in Jesus' mind that, that you commit adultery. Now, he goes on. He doesn't leave it here. And he says, okay, he goes on to speak about telling the truth. He said, you've heard it said that you shouldn't. You know, if you take an oath, you better stick with it. He says, that's external. He says, I say to you, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Well, what does he mean? Well, he says, your heart should be so full of integrity that every single thing you say, every yes and every no should be taken as seriously by you as if you just have sworn on a stack of Bibles. He's saying the gospel goodness creates in us to where even if my yes is going to create external consequences, it should mean nothing to me. Then he goes on. He says this whole thing about turning the other cheek. And basically what Jesus says in this, don't you dare just refrain from vengeance externally. He says, I don't just ask for that. I say to you that when you look at the person who has wronged you, no matter how messed up and how vicious they've been, you need to treat them with hope. You need to treat them with forgiveness. Wow. Wow. What does he mean by that? Well, he means this. Okay, you hurt me, but that's a speck. I have a plank. You hurt me. It devastated me. It betrayed me. It was... It was really, really wrong what you did. You never call wrong right. But what you do is you say, but the gospel is for you just like it is for me. See, you know why we have unforgiveness? It's because somehow the gospel hasn't penetrated us that there's level ground at the cross. It hasn't penetrated. We still think there's somebody who deserves the wrath of God, but not me. It's funny, can you imagine going before God and saying, God, I want you to smite this fellow? And he goes, okay, you want me to treat him with justice. Then I have to take you out of grace and treat you with justice. And suddenly when we realize that, we go, no, God, don't smite him. And don't smite me. Because the gospel says he needs the same, she needs the same forgiveness I need. And when we recognize, we also start to recognize the issue is not just the externals. 
It's the issue of the heart. By the time you get to the end of this whole part of the Sermon on the Mount, you should be like a big smoking mass of wreckage. Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, any teacher of ethics, there's never been anyone who's asked for what Jesus asked for. Now, I want you to, we're running out of time, but will you press in with me for a few minutes, okay? Religion only worries about externals. A lot of people follow the law. They don't commit adultery or kill. They make sure they tell the truth, but they do it exactly the same way and for the same reason the world does it. All of us, apart from Christ, are full of fear and pride. So when the world lies, they lie out of fear. They lie because the truth is not going to get them where they want to, want to go. So out of fear, they lie. You, many of us in this room, when we've lied, it's because we got caught. We had afraid of disapproval. We were afraid of consequences. So the lie was easier than the truth. But we did it because we were afraid. And then there are other people in the world. They lie because they can get away with it. So it's pride. I can fool anybody. I can fake sincerity. Fear and pride. Okay, why do religious not lie? Fear. If I lie, God will get me. Pride. I'm not like those lying people. So here, nobody fools God, friends. He knows that whether you lie or don't lie, you do it out of fear whether you lie or you don't lie you do it out of pride so in God's book it's the same because the motives are the same you understand what he's saying Jesus says there's a kind of goodness that many people who are religious present that's nothing more than a selfish goodness it's an attempt to get leverage now here's here's my concluding part of this Listen to this. The Sermon on the Mount should create such an amazement of the beauty of the character of Jesus. Jesus is the only person who's ever lived like this. He said, blessed are the merciful, yet though he was merciful, he did not obtain mercy. He was condemned. Jesus says, blessed are the pure of heart, and though he was pure in heart, he didn't see God, but rather had God turn his face away from him on the cross. This is why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you turned your face away? Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth. He was absolutely meek, but he was disenfranchised. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. No one has ever hungered and thirsted after righteousness like Jesus. Except he wasn't fulfilled. He was emptied out. He said, I thirst on the cross. Why, was it, why did that happen? Well, it's simple in a way. Because you're not pure. Because you're not meek. Because you're not hungry enough. He who is all those things took on the punishment so you who are none of those things could get all the rewards. Here's the way John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, put it. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. As long, friends, as you defend your life by your life, you'll always be religious. It is not until you stop defending your life and really call it what it is, a bankruptcy, a failure, and begin to defend your life by the life of Christ. I will never, you will never be able to keep the Sermon on the Mount. 
But Jesus has already done it for you. See, it's, it's either Jesus only or it's nothing. There's only one path. And the only path that transforms a slave into a child, the only path that sees the whole of the law fulfilled. Do you know what? Jesus didn't just restrain his anger. He had no murderous thoughts. Jesus didn't just go, oh, let me just keep my manhood in check. He saw women as sisters, as mothers, as daughters. He saw them not as objects of his fulfillment. He saw them as people to be loved and to be cherished and be respected. Jesus didn't have to go, oh, am I lying right now? No, every word he said, he backed up with every fiber of his being. See, the only one who can fulfill the law's demands is the one who is asking you to let him do it for you. See, every religious person has no assurance of salvation because they could still mess up between now and the grave. Every person who has Christ has assurance and experience of heaven now. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Will you stand with me? Does this make sense to you? I'm going to ask uh, our prayer guys, uh, folks, if you come up. I, I, I sense some of you. You want to go deeper into this gospel goodness. I, I sense, if you're listening to me today, you're kind of sick and tired of, of, of being powerless, of feeling like it's always a fight, that you're always trying to resist evil and trying to figure out how to unleash some good in you. I'm telling you, today is the day to stop this religious nonsense, to stop in a sense, to stop binding your life to a set of rules that you'll never be able to keep and that you'll always be either excusing yourself or condemning yourself. And instead, feel the bond that Jesus is unleashing right now in this room to you to draw you into intimacy with the Father and the Father's love sealed by His Holy Spirit. When you stop striving and start receiving, everything changes. A goodness starts to flow out of you that's not from you. That's heaven sent. That's a river that flows from heaven and gives you the goodness of God flowing in your life. It's the only way to live. It's the only way of abundance. Not only... Do you come into right relationship with God by faith? But you live in right relationship with God by faith. In the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. I love Galatians 2.20. I know we're running out of time, but I love this so much. He says, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. In other words, religious Paul died. And the bondage to the set of rules that he had lived by died. Yet not in I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. A real Paul emerged. A Paul, he could say, this is who I really was always supposed to be. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me.
There's no other way to live. You can't reform that old self. You can't rehabilitate it. You just have to let it be crucified. And then you start to live in his beauty, in his character. Would you do it today? Would you not let the, another day go by? Come into the passion of Jesus and the passion of the Spirit. Lord, we, uh, we seal what you're doing now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here today. God bless you, and we'll see you next week. Come in.